Everything you're about to hear from Jesus is from grace. I'll tell you about the sermon, it's confrontational. It's hard for me. I'm teaching you this morning, like every Sunday morning when it's my privilege to open the Bible, I'm teaching you from a point of need and personal struggle to obey. Very rarely, if ever, have I ever been able to teach anybody anything in the Bible where I can say, I've got this one down. You come with me. No, it's always a work in progress, always another step forward, always a sin to be forgiven, always a grace to be applied. But this morning, I want you to hear this. Jesus is going to say some things that are going to seem on the front side impossible, certainly to some of you, maybe to all of you. But he never takes away hope. This week, I heard someone give a speech that came, I think, pretty close to taking hope away from the audience. And I thought to myself, Jesus never does this. At his most confrontational, at his most severe, his intention is to give you life and hope and show you a better way and teach you that he being in you, you being in Christ, you can do everything that he tells you to do. So let's pray, let's pay attention to him and ask him to help us obey. Father, thank you for giving us your son. It's his amazing grace we've been singing of. It's not our accomplishment, it's his grace. It's our need, our blindness, our lostness, our alienation, our loneliness, all covered, all made well, all healed, all renewed by your amazing grace. Thank you. Give me grace as I preach. Keep me from the sin of hypocrisy to preach anything better than I'm willing to live it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. A single hand clap right before we get started. I, I hope that's enthusiasm. It's not me, please, if that has anything to do with me. You're way off. We're living in, in, in a 21st century epidemic of anxiety, fear, worry. A very accomplished person spoke to me after the first service and pleaded with me to open a ministry to address what she and her profession and her role as a parent sees on a daily basis. It's a 21st century plague. In many ways, by any objective measure, never have we been safer, never have we been more prosperous, top to bottom. There are tremendous inequities in the system. Some are very, very rich. Others are very, very poor. But on balance, in the Western world, and particularly in the United States, by any objective measure, physical life has never been better for more people. And yet we are painfully, painfully, desperately anxious, fearful, often depressed. That's why it's timely that we've returned to the Gospel of Luke. If you haven't figured it out, what we do at Crosspoint is we teach through books of the Bible, but probably only in attention to my short attention span. We don't always move straight through a single long book. We've been weaving in and out of the book of Luke for a very long time and putting other sections, other books of the Bible in in the middle. For a few weeks, we'll be back at Luke. And Jesus in Luke chapter 12, that's where I'd like you to open your Bible, please. Luke chapter 12, verse 22. And if you don't have a Bible, please find one. 
and many of you will use an electronic device, and if you do, that's cool, but let me encourage you to put the settings so that you won't be distracted by whatever else happens on your phone or your iPad. It's helpful to be present just with the Word of God and not have something tweeting, Instagramming, Snapchatting, Facebooking, messengering, Whatsapping, slacking, or whatever else, whatever you're into. I didn't hit them all. But not to be distracted. In Luke chapter 12, where we've come to, Jesus has been teaching... And today's message begins in verse 22, but you'll notice if you look at it, that in verse 22 he says that word again, therefore. In other words, he's making a connection to something that has just happened, and here's what it is. He's been teaching, and he's been interrupted in the middle of his teaching by someone who rudely shouted at him, make my brother share the inheritance with me. And Jesus is such a masterful teacher, or the Son of God cannot be distracted. He cannot be heckled away from his point. I can. In a lifetime of teaching the Bible, literally everything possibly that could happen to a person except actual physical violence has happened to me, including a dogfight in the back of the auditorium once in a, in a little church in Mexico. I mean, a literal dogfight. Two dogfights got a hold of each other in the middle of a wedding. And Yeah, I know, in the middle of a wedding. Um, not an omen. Anyway. Um, Jesus, Jesus is undistractable. He gets this rude interruption, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And what he does instead is check himself out of that particular family trouble. He says to the man, I'm not your judge, I'm not an arbitrator between you and your family. And he tells them a story, a story so famous that you maybe have heard it, even if you haven't read it in the Gospel of Luke. He talks about a rich man who's achieved essentially what most everybody in this auditorium is working toward, he's achieved a comfortable retirement. He's got his version of the American dream. He's been so successful, actually, that he needs to expand his property. He needs to have bigger storehouses to pile all the wealth in. And when that's all done, he sits back and says to himself, now it's time to enjoy it. But God steps into the story, according to Jesus. Look in Luke 12, verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Very rude interruption in the story, very brutal interjection by God himself. This man has achieved through careful management, maybe family wealth, certainly hard work, he's achieved everything anybody could possibly want. And at the very moment he tells himself to sit back and enjoy it, God shows up and calls him a fool with this question. You've got all this stuff. Who's it going to belong to? And the truth is he doesn't know. He maybe has made plans, but there's old, an old American saying you may have heard, where there's a will, there's a lawsuit. <laughs> you may have made your plans, your desires, your intentions clear, but it's not really up to you. You're dead. Who knows what happens? Lawyers and many, many families across America can tell you why that saying exists in the world. 
And Jesus says, this man is a fool because he thought he had more time to enjoy his stuff. This man is a fool because he lived for the things he could enjoy on earth alone. And here's the punch and the point in Jesus' story. Verse 21, so is the one. In other words, God will call anyone a fool. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And what's it say? That was not a very enthusiastic reading of the Word of God. God will call anybody a fool who piles it all up for himself and is not rich, is not generous toward God. Whew. A little personal. And then he goes on to teach his disciples, which is what I'd like to share with you today. His disciples, for the most part, have left the life that they once enjoyed behind to follow Jesus. In the case of the fishermen who were following Jesus, they've literally walked away from the tools of their trade. In the case of Matthew, the tax collector, Matthew will one day actually walk away from the tax collector's booth and start following Jesus. These people are all in. And the audience that Jesus is addressing is people that are poor as a population on a scale that we cannot imagine. They literally depend upon their daily wage. Jesus has taught us all to pray, give us this day our daily bread, and that would have been keenly important to them because for many of them that's all they would have or could expect. We've got a pretty big fridge. We've got so much stuff in it. I'm not worried about anything happening as long as we have electricity. I won't lose much weight this week just based on the stuff we already have. In the first century, it's not the case. It was a daily struggle for the survival of life. Many people lived in conditions of slavery. In other words, their employment and their daily wage depended on the whim of another person who might be cruel. And yet Jesus is calling all of his disciples and warning everyone in the crowd to not pile it up, but to be generous toward God. And then he turns to his disciples, please notice the change in audience, and tells them something so timely, he could say it this morning to us, and it would be as needful this morning as it was when he said it to them. Luke 12, verse 22, he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world, in other words, the people who don't know God, all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money with money bags that do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Go back to verse 22. The first thing Jesus says, do not be anxious. So I just have to ask you, are you? I often am. I'm teaching this as a fellow struggler, not as a masterful disciple who has learned to obey Jesus fully. I'm on the journey with you. Jesus says, because life is fragile and because people often misplace their priorities and pile it all up for themselves and forget that life does not consist in stuff and they most of all forget to be generous toward God, they'll be foolish. Here's what I'm going to tell you, Jesus says, this is how you are to live. Do not be anxious. And in Greek, it's a present imperative, meaning simply, you don't have to know Greek to understand the idea, it's a daily struggle. It's a daily decision. It's something that you may have to face 12 or 20 or 50 times in a day. Am I going to be anxious in these trying circumstances? And Jesus begins to talk to them about the damage that worry does. Let me walk you through them. Damage does a great deal of worry to the people who suffer from it and struggle with it. Luke 12, verse 22. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. The first thing that worry does to you, Jesus warns, is it makes you value your stuff more than your own life. It makes you worry and stress, and it actually ruins the life you have because you are so burdened down by the struggle to accumulate and the struggle to provide your daily needs. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you've known people who have actually taken their own life. They've committed suicide because they lost possessions. Think about how heartbreaking that is. They lost stuff, and they decided that life itself could not go on. When we have natural disasters like are occurring in Nebraska, or when we have the wildfires, the clarity of those disasters and those tragedies that it brings to us sometimes on the TV screen is of a little family huddled together, father holding his trembling wife and his little children in his arms, and he says something like, we lost everything, but we have each other, and that's what matters. And that's what Jesus is driving at here. 
He does not want those whom he loves, his followers for whom he will give his life, he does not want them anxious about their food and clothing because life is more important than food and the body is more important than their clothing. Even worse, look at verse 24. Here's another damage that worry does. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They're not like the rich man in the parable. They're not industrious. They're not plowing. They're not harvesting. They don't have storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And notice he said ravens. How many of you like ravens? Kind of a dirty bird, aren't they? Edgar Allan Poe made the raven famous in literature. Why is that? Kind of a creepy little creature. Jesus being deliberate and specific, a raven was an unclean animal in the Old Testament. They were have nothing to do with it. Don't touch it, don't eat it. You see his point? You've never seen a bird have a sales meeting. They don't conference in. No bird manager ever says to the bird sales force, let's see the numbers, boy, ah, down 2%. We're getting killed out in the West. Smith, a lot of people wanted that territory. If you can't handle it, I'll get a bird in here who can. <laughs> Doesn't happen. Never does a bird sit with lifeless eyes looking at his television, thinking to himself, what's it all been about? My bird life is pointless. I'm nothing left to live for in this avian life of mine. No, they're... Jesus' point is they're, they're careless creatures. They don't stress. They're literally dirty birds. If the disciples saw a big group of ravens flying toward them and over them, they likely would cringe. They would likely take cover. It's a nasty little animal. And Jesus says, your father takes care of them. Did you notice the question? How much more value do you have to God who takes care of birds who don't worry about anything? Of how much more value are they? The second damage that worry does is this. It makes you forget how much God values you. This is one of the things you could take from this message. And I'll send you something this week in the church-wide email. If you don't get it, I'd love for you to sign up today. As a disciple of Jesus, your job, your mission in life is to live on the basis of your identity in Christ, not your achievement, not your circumstances, not your status, except for this beloved, precious status, that you are a beloved child of God. You are His own precious daughter. You are His beloved son. If you ever lose sight of the fact of your eternally precious identity in Christ, then stress is always at the door. Anxiety will always come knocking. Fear is always lurking and stalking. But you are precious to God, and you understand, living 2,000 years after Christ, you understand something that the disciples could not. They were only now beginning to fathom how much this man who is teaching them actually loves them. They're hearing him open the scriptures and point to himself Sabbath by Sabbath in the synagogue and anywhere he could teach people that he is actually the one who God has promised to come and save them. But they couldn't begin to imagine or understand as you do today when they heard this teaching how much he actually loves them 
because he has not yet died for them. They are going to see Jesus do something extraordinary. They are going to see him in the Gospel of John use the very power of God to intervene to save their lives so that they could escape and they are going to watch with wide eyes as he walks forward to meet his captors to go face his executioner. He's not, he's not going to cringe. He's not even going to wait. He is going to say to his disciples, there they come, let's go. Let's go to them. He's not going to say a word in his defense. He is going to willingly die for them, and on the cross, as he explained to Peter, he is going to refuse to say a word that could have saved him by summoning many thousands of angels to defend him and pluck him from that cross and take him back to glory. He's going to refuse it because he values the life of his disciples. The book of Hebrews says that when Jesus was on the cross, he despised its shame. In other words, he thought that the pain and the agony and the humiliation of the cross and of bearing sin was worth enduring because he looked forward to the joy of saving people. And what he's trying to explain to them and to us is if God loves you that way, to die for you, you really think he's going to let you go hungry? The God who loves filthy birds, he's going to forget you? No. But worry tells you that God doesn't value you, that God doesn't put worth on you, that you are not precious to him, and you are. Look in verse 25 now. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Can you do that, by the way? Can you worry yourself into a longer life? It's just the opposite, right? We know now. You get a black belt in worrying, you'll die sooner. And if you don't die sooner, you feel like you're dead half the time. None of us can prolong our life not a single hour by worrying about it. Verse 26. If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? You want to hear what he's really saying? Here, I'll tell you. It's really subtle. Come close. You're not in charge. <laughs> you like that? It's true. I don't like it. See, we all think we're in charge, and anxiety comes into my life when I realize how little control I actually have over things. This great big world, all these responsibilities, and I can't control it, if you're not very careful at that moment and you don't turn to your heavenly father who knows you and loves you and gave you his son to die for you so that you could be welcomed into God's own family, if the fact that you can't be in control doesn't cause you to trust God, it'll make you anxious about yourself. And the third damage that worry does is it makes you think that it's helping See, some of you, I'm sure, are doing what I often do, and you're confusing worry and prayer. You're thinking about something all the time, and you feel like you're working on it. You think it's helping. You think it's going to do some good, and it's not. It's making you miserable. Worry is me talking to myself about all of my troubles. Prayer is very simple. 
I stop talking to me, I'm a miserable audience, and I turn to God. And I remember these words of Jesus, who said, Bruce, day by day, as you face various things, do not be anxious. Don't worry, it's not doing any good. It's making you put stuff ahead of life itself. It's making you forget how precious you are to God, not because you're worth it, but because he is. Not because I'm good, but because he is. Not because I'm loving or faithful, but because God is. And it makes you think that it's actually helping, and you're not in control. if, If you're like me this week, you broke a shoelace. You can't even get dressed reliably in the morning. On at least two occasions, I've come to work with two shoes that look nothing alike, and it wasn't even stylish. (laughs) And I noticed what's worse, I noticed it about six hours into the day after about five meetings, and I thought to myself, I wonder what my credibility was in the eyes of the people who are thinking, my goodness, I'm bringing my life and troubles to this man, and he can't even get dressed in the morning. (laughs) One brown, one black very different, doesn't even look cool. (laughs) You're not in charge. And Jesus is telling you that not to depress you, but to put you in the rightful, humble place you should be. Not to lower and degrade you, but to remind you that it is your heavenly Father who's in charge. Look in verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. How many of you have gone out, driven out to see the flowers this year? Anybody do that? Not an adventurous group. There were six people in the first service who did. Going today, okay. Just because I said so just now, okay. People drive out to see flowers. I had heard growing up in Mexico for years about the colors in New England, and I thought this must be for people who are very easily entertained or very nearly dead, that somebody would go out to travel across the country just to see some leaves, but then we moved to Boston so that I could teach in a Bible college there for a semester. And I was pulling the van off the road to run up to trees and rip leaves off the trees to put in my Bible as a reminder that God uses this color palette too. It was spectacular. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's passing through ordinary fields filled with ordinary cheap flowers, lilies. He says, boys, you see these hills filled with flowers? They're more magnificent than Solomon. They're better than any Hollywood starlet on the red carpet. God did this. And somebody may come tomorrow and mow these flowers down and throw them in an oven. Why are they so beautiful? Because your father is generous. He feeds the ravens in the air. He clothes the lilies in the field and makes them beautiful for one simple solitary reason. Because he's good. He clothes the grass, grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven and here here he gets to the heart of the problem. This is where it gets confrontational for me. How much more will he clothe you? And then what's he say? Oh, you of little faith. Here's the real problem, according to Jesus. When you're worrying, 
you're not trusting God. And I speak as someone who has a black belt in worry. I've always been that way. It's my temperament. It's a family trait. It goes on for generations. We can worry about things that the rest of the world doesn't even know exist or are possible. And Jesus says, whatever the cause, when you're worrying, you have forgotten to trust your heavenly Father. Worry and worship cannot coexist. You can only worry or trust him. You cannot do both at once. And his commandment is day by day, decision by decision, need by need. What he wants you to do is trust him. And here is the test. And here's what I learned this time studying this passage. Because I've studied Luke 12 for years now. It's a favorite passage. If for no other reason than one little phrase, which I'm about to read to you. I had always separated what Jesus is saying here from what he says next. And I now realize, this week I realize, that's a terrible mistake. Because all Jesus has said so far is, I don't want you to worry. I command you day by day, decision by decision, not to be anxious and not to be stressed. Because your heavenly Father knows what you need. He's not a bad dad. He's not ignorant, neglectful, or forgetful as I often can be. In fact, I'll just tell you, since we're all friends here, since we're having this little family meeting, I get up early, I read my passage quite a few times on Sunday morning, and in reflecting on the fact that my Heavenly Father doesn't forget what I need, I was reminded that I owe both of my sons money. <laughs> Thankfully, through the magic of a smartphone, I was able to fix it. So I grabbed my phone, sent them each money. And I thought to myself, here's the difference between my heavenly father and me. I forget. They're such good kids, they hadn't mentioned it. I mean, not a little bit of money. I sent them 160 bucks between the two of them, which at their age, it's kind of a big deal, you know? Why? Because I'm forgetful, because I'm frail, because I get distracted. Your heavenly father never has. He knows that you have need of these things. And some of you have such a miserable, awkward, difficult relationship with your earthly father, or maybe he's already gone from your life, that when you hear about your heavenly father, it doesn't really occasion trust. Let me help you with that. This is the father you always wanted. He will never fail you. He will sacrifice even the life of God himself so that you will be safe and secure. As you're going to hear at a moment, he's going to welcome you into his kingdom. He's going to call you part of his beloved family. He's going to call you part of his flock. He's going to appoint Jesus, your good shepherd, to go and meet the wolf, whatever the wolf is, up to and including death itself, so that you will be safe, so you can trust him. And all of that is in this first passage. But what I hadn't seen is that Jesus continues teaching. And he's going to tell you something very important. That the real proof of you having believed what he just taught you is actually doing, taking action and doing what he tells you to do. Because... The reason to trust your father is this. He knows what you need and he will provide it for you. 
And when you believe God, you behave accordingly. And this is a crucial part of moving from anxiety and worry into the actual life of obedience and love for Jesus. It's always proven by action. Belief is never shown by mere confession, by mere lip service. It's always shown in what you choose to do. Later this year, we're going to go through the entire book of James, and there's some troubling passages in the book of James that shouldn't trouble people at all because all James is saying is, you claim to believe, show me. If you're familiar with the state motto, James would say, I'm from Missouri. You're going to have to show me. That's the Missouri state motto, if you didn't know, the show me state. In other words, don't tell me, just, just do it. Let me see it. Don't send me a pamphlet. Don't send me a promise. Don't email me. Just, just do it. And that's what Jesus is working on here now. He's told them in several different ways, do not be anxious. Your father knows what you need. He's keenly aware, verse 30, some of you may want to underline that in your, in your Bible. Verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. The nations of the world that do not know God at all, they're the ones that are building their whole life on these things. They are wearing themselves out, they are worrying themselves sick in the pursuit of stuff. Jesus is saying, you don't need to live like that because, verse 30, your father already knows that you need them. He's not like an absent-minded pastor who, reminds, who is reminded by his own sermon six days after he took that debt up with his sons that he actually needs to send them money so that he can preach with a clear conscience. Your heavenly father is nothing like that. He knows what you need. He's already moving to provide it. What you have to do, Jesus says is this, verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. See, when you believe God, you will behave accordingly, and at the end of this passage and in the end of this sermon, Jesus is going to lay down two world-tilting commands that show that you have put trust over worry because the proof that you are no longer worrying that you have defeated worry is not an emotional state it's obedience to God and guess what God who made human thinking who made the human mind knows how it operates anyone who understands the human psyche will tell you this if you sit in a corner and tell yourself not to worry you know what you're going to do worry what moves people forward is action it is not further introspection it is action it is reflection, coming aware, becoming aware of the truth that it moves you into actual obedience. In this case, obedience to God. And that's why Jesus says in these final verses, beginning in verse 31, seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. In other words, Jesus says you are in the kingdom of God. Seek that, build your life on that, and then you'll receive what you need. That's the first commandment. 
Seek his kingdom, then your heavenly Father, who already knows what you need, will provide it. Why is he talking about a kingdom? Because he's telling you the life of God has broken into ordinary existence and you now represent him. When God calls himself your father, it means that you are in his family. You carry his name. You have his authority. You're supported by his resources. You are protected by his love. And Jesus says, now go out there and act like it. Don't live like all the nations who don't know God. They live the way they do, scurrying after simple things that God could give them any time, like clothing and money. They live like that because they don't know God at all. You already do, and anxious as you are, you need to remember that your Father in heaven has already promised and is on his way to provide what you need, so you go build your life on him. Build your life, center your life on showing up everywhere God takes you as his own child. Where is that? Well, that depends on you. What's in your life? Are you at school? If you're at school, that means that since you are a child of the king, wherever you are, you represent the kingdom. Are you dating? That means that in that relationship, you are a son or a daughter of God. In that relationship, you are in the kingdom. You are related to the great king. You have Jesus as your brother and your savior and your boss. You represent his name. You bear the name of God in that relationship. Are you grandparenting? Are you parenting? You represent God. You represent his name, his values, his truth in your grandparenting or parenting relationship, in your friendships, in your hobbies. You represent the kingdom of God. In all of those ordinary places, Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God first, and then God will provide what used to concern you that you feared he would not. And I say that this command is world-tilting because average Christians who have not yet learned to trust Jesus, put it backwards. And they say, when we're all settled, when we've checked all the boxes, when we've met all our needs, then we'll get busy serving God. Then we'll worry about representing him. The real representative of, of Jesus are, are the professionals. We'll support the professionals, cover all of our needs, and in that rare instance, maybe two years before we die, we've got everything taken care of, then we'll give God what's, rest of our, what's left of our life. And Jesus says, no, to people who lived, many of them under slavery, to fishermen who had literally walked away from their nets, they have left the tools of the trade behind, he says to them, you, disciples, seek the kingdom of God, and verse 31, these things will be added to you. And boy, do I love these next few verses. Fear not, little flock. That's cool, isn't it? Why did he call them little flock? Because he has made himself their shepherd. You ever been around sheep? I've been around sheep twice in my life. I was not impressed either time. <laughs> they are skittish, dumb little animals. They literally need a shepherd or they will die from natural causes, like literally falling over because their wool gets so heavy. 
they will be, in English they say, they will be cast. And they will die on their backs from starvation, exposure, dehydration, unless somebody is there to pick them back up. Jesus looks at these troubled, frantic, worried, anxious men and says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's not only that you're already in the kingdom, he's going to give you what belongs to him. Here's what they're to do because of that. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. And the church said, uh-huh, what, huh, oh, oh me? You understand why he's saying this? Why sell your possessions? Because the disciples who were listening to him have already given away or left so much to follow him, they don't have much left. So he's telling them something really radical. Even to these who have walked away from the nets, your best move, since you don't have much, your best move would be to sell what you have and give it to the needy. Because, he says, by doing so, you will provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. In other words, you'll be spared the folly of the fool who piled it up together and thought he had time to enjoy it. What you give away in the kingdom of God is does some good on earth, and then if you give generously on earth, Jesus promises you'll be rewarded in heaven. That sounds pretty radical. It is. Before I'm done, I want you to make sure you see the connection between these two things he's taught. The first thing he's taught in the first movement of this teaching is stop worrying. God takes care of simple, dirty animals and he clothes the grass of the field which may be cut down tomorrow with beauty. He will certainly take care of you. So don't worry about anything. And then he says, the way you're going to prove, the way you're going to show God and a watching world that you actually believe God and you've moved past worry into worship is you're going to orient your life wherever it is, whatever you're invested in, whatever you're into, wherever God takes you, you're going to put his kingdom, his values, his son first. And even if you don't have much, you're going to give generously from what you have so that the treasure you give away here on earth will be kept up as a reward for you in heaven because he says at the end, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And boy, that's a true word. Your heart follows your money, have you noticed? Let me, let me explain. Some of you remember a car that my family called Green Thunder. It was a 1998 Green Camry that I drove until about 18 months ago. It was a car so shameful that I once pulled into Walmart with my son and a six-year-old girl who had never met us. We had the windows down. It was summer, so we were able to hear it. She pointed at the car and said to her father, Daddy, I don't want a car like that one. <laughs> and my high school-age son said, Dad, please, it's time. Five-year-old girls are making fun of your car. <laughs> but see, here's why I kept it. I kept it for literally 200,000 miles, 
And I kept it because it was reliable and I didn't worry about anything. One day somebody hit it. And I laughed and I thought that might improve it. <laughs> Out of necessity because it was starting to get a little shaky because I couldn't reliably take it as far as your Belinda. I got rid of it and I got a newer car. It's just a 14 Civic, but almost every morning before I get in, I walk all the way around it. Looking for scratches, looking for dents. What happened there? More money in the new car, my heart goes with it. See, if you notice, everything that Jesus talked about, anxiety, worry, fear, it all centered around things in life like clothing and food, ordinary needs. And his reassurance is, listen, your heavenly Father who has sent me to die for you, he already knows that. He's promised to take care of you. The one who clothes the fields and cares for the birds, he's certainly going to take care of you. Trust him and here's how you show it. Whatever your circumstances are, no matter your difficulties, even as you dry away tears, you put his kingdom first. You take what money you have, even if it's a little, and you give it generously away so that you will do good on earth and have treasures in heaven. What Jesus is telling you is this, don't waste your life on worry. Instead, be a disciple of Jesus and behave like you trust your heavenly Father because you'll always be in one of those two places. You'll be wasting your life, your your wealth, your peace of mind away with worry, or you'll be acting in simple personal trust and stepping out to do what Jesus said because you trust the Father who sent him for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're going to take a moment to reflect now in your presence. Give everybody grace and humility to be honest with you. They don't owe an explanation to me, but they will someday give account to the, themselves to you. So give them grace and help me as I do my own work with you. Are you anxious? Tell Jesus all about it. Tell him all about your fears. Tell him all about your thoughts. Just tell him the whole story. I'll be quiet so you can. Reflect now in comparison on your fears with how much he loves you that the one you're praying for, praying to rather, actually died for you so that you could have eternal life. And now, if you've noticed that it's been more about your little empire than your father's kingdom, If you check your giving, your serving, your loving, you're putting him ahead of your own needs, and you see a pretty bad report, tell him you're going to obey him now. You're going to get started. You're going to give even though you don't think you have enough. 
you're going to love even people who you may consider your enemies. You're going to serve people even though you think you might not do a very good job. Tell him your troubles. Remember his love. Tell him you're going to obey him. Lord Jesus, hear your disciples, hear me among them confessing my sin, my need, my weakness, my frequent anxiety rather than trust. Forgive us. Help us to put your kingdom first. Trust that you will then provide when we put you as the priority. And Father, bless Bless needy people, bless frail people, bless anxious parents and anxious children. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand beside missionaries in Christ Church, New Zealand this week, that we can send relief and we can send news of the gospel and news of Jesus around our community and around this world. Bless this offering. All it is is an expression of trust. Help us to trust you more, to give and live, serve and love, because we do trust you. In Christ's name.